This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk to leading constitutional expert and dean of UC Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Chemerinsky says that Kavanaugh should not be confirmed if he refuses to answer questions and that senators should exercise their power and insist Kavanaugh reveal his views on crucial constitutional issues. There is no basis in law or the Constitution for the myth, Chemerinsky says, that nominees should be given a free pass on explaining their views. We then talked to Dan Labatz about the landslide victory of Andres Manuel López Obrador, or as he is known, AMLO, in Mexico's recent presidential election. AMLO arguably had the election stolen from him in 2006, but his victory this time was too large to undermine or steal. But what are his politics and what is his program? Dan, who's written extensively on workers' rights in the United States and Mexico, joins us with his take. All this and more in just a moment on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and extremely pleased to have Erwin Chemerinsky back with us. He's the Dean and the Jesse Choper Distinguished Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law and a leading expert in constitutional law. He's joining us to discuss the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to replace the retiring Anthony Kennedy to the Supreme Court. Dean Chemerinsky has a piece in the LA Times recently writing that the confirmation hearings could resemble kabuki theater unless the senators exercise their power and insist that the judge answer question about his views on crucial constitutional issues, despite the myth that has developed that these nominees, like Gorsuch, should be able to refuse to answer such inquiries. And he further explains, Chemerinsky, that there's no basis in the Constitution or law for the idea that nominees to the Supreme Court should be given a free pass on explaining their views. So that's what we're going to really talk about. And I just want to say, Erwin Chemerinsky, he's the dean now at Bolt, Berkeley School of Law, previously at UCI, and he's the author of 10 books and many, many law review articles, and was named as the most influential person in legal education in the United States. So with all of that, Erwin Chemerinsky, welcome to Jacobin Radio. It's great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Well, let's begin with the upcoming hearings, Senate Judiciary hearings, and what the public really deserves to know, plus, I guess, the tactics that both sides are likely to employ to either obfuscate, pass on the questioning, or whatever that you considered as part of the kabuki theater routine. Well, let me start by saying where the kabuki theater analogy came from. In January 2006, I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee against the confirmation of Samuel Alito for the Supreme Court. At a break in the proceedings, Senator Joe Biden came up to me and said, you know, this is all an exercise in kabuki theater. He said, everyone in this room knows that Samuel Alito is going to be a very conservative Supreme Court justice. He said, the Republicans are all pretending that he's open-minded and doesn't have an ideology. The Democrats are all trying to ask him questions to trip him up, but he's too smart for that. I worry that what we're going to see with regard to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh is exactly the same as we saw with regard to Samuel Alito. Brett Kavanaugh is going to be every bit as conservative as Samuel Alito. The Republicans are going to pretend he's independent. He has no ideology. The Democrats will try to trip him up, 
is too smart for that. Oh, yes, he is very smart on that. And what you've just mentioned as well is that in the past they've been able to say that they have no stated position and many of the people around on the Republican Party especially are saying you can expect him to go case by case, but there's no sort of opinion. But as you know, Mitch McConnell was worried about Trump nominating him precisely because Judge Kavanaugh has such a long written record. So I guess given all of that, this is really looking into a crystal ball, but do you expect that we'll get the kind of hearing that we're used to, let's say, up to about, what, a decade ago? I think we're going to get the same kind of hearing that we got with regard to Neil Gorsuch. It worked for Neil Gorsuch. He got confirmed by the Senate Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And I think that in this instance, Brett Kavanaugh is going to read that script. He's going to refuse to answer questions about anything remotely controversial. Mm-hmm. After all, Neil Gorsuch wouldn't even answer questions about Brown versus Board of Education. <laughs> and unless the senators are willing to say, answer our questions or we're not going to confirm, Brett Kavanaugh can get away with it, just like Neil Gorsuch did. And, of course, everybody knows what the numbers are. So you're absolutely right, and that's not too good to hear. But what about the other question that I know most Democrats and a lot of people are still very angry about, the fact that McConnell wouldn't even hold hearings after Scalia died and Obama had a possibility within the last year of his term to nominate another person to the Supreme Court. Now we're just very close to the midterm elections, and some people are trying to raise the same argument. They don't have the numbers, the Democrats, to really prevent the hearings, but do you think that we're likely to see some other kind of stalling tactics to make the hearings not start until after the election? There's nothing the Democrats can do unless they can get one or two Republican senators to go along with them. Even then, the Democrats are going to need all of the Democrats from red states, like Indiana and Missouri and North Dakota, in West Virginia, who are up for re-election, to side with them. The Republicans control the proceedings. They're the majority party. And so unless the Democrats can get the votes, there's nothing that they can do. Right. Well, okay, so let's then go into a sort of basic education for our audience on the kind of new thinking that somebody like Kavanaugh will bring in. And this is, you know, the question about his views on presidential power and separation of powers and whether or not there's any constitutional basis for this. And how does it relate, let's say, to the last round or the last time that we saw this come up with the Berkeley School of Law at your place? You, I don't remember his first name, redefining torture and saying it was okay. And this came up during the Bush-Cheney administration. So in other words, Um, it's about presidential power. Sure. Brett Kavanaugh was part of the Bush administration that made such expansive assertions with regard to presidential power. Interestingly, Brett Kavanaugh was part of Ken Starr's team. In fact, he had a very leading role in Ken Starr's team, accusing President Clinton of federal crimes, urging impeachment of President Clinton. Then, in 2009, Brett Kavanaugh wrote an article in the Minnesota Law Review about the importance of shielding the president from inquiry, from civil suits, from criminal prosecution. That's very troubling, because it suggests that Brett Kavanaugh would be on the side of protecting the president rather than scrutinizing the president's conduct. 
And also, it sort of just basically shows what everybody's writing about and everybody knows is how partisan the court is now, too, because they change their positions as well, depending on who it is in terms of, say, impeachment proceedings. But okay, so let's look at how this will play out. President Trump has issued an order to separate families and detain them indefinitely, more or less. Despite the law, the judge has ordered that this cannot pass. It's been ignored. And it, again, raises another side of the issue of constitutional restraints on the power of the presidency. And also raises the question of whether non-residents have due process rights. What do you think? Well, I think what the Trump policy is with regard to separating parents from their children is truly abhorrent. Just to focus on over a hundred children under five mm. being stripped from their parents, the Trump administration could not meet a federal court order to reunite these children under five because it didn't keep adequate records to track the parents and the children. It's horrifying. So far, the lower courts have ruled against the Trump administration. Judge Savanaugh in San Diego has ordered that the Trump administration reunite parents and their children. Judge Dolly G. in Los Angeles has said that the Trump administration is violating a settlement. And just on Monday night of this week, she wrote a terrific opinion saying that she's not going to modify the settlement agreement, that the Trump administration has to comply with the law. The question is, when this gets to the United States Supreme Court, will the Supreme Court stand up to the president? Or will the Supreme Court show the same tremendous deference to the president that it did in upholding the travel ban? But did you just say, maybe I didn't hear it right, that it was Judge Kavanaugh that wrote that the president must reunite the families? No, Judge Kavanaugh. Oh, okay. Judge Kavanaugh, she sits in San Diego on the federal court. She issued the order in the ACLU case, not Judge Kavanaugh. Right. They do sound alike. Okay. So having said that, then you raise the issue of whether the Supreme Court will back the president or essentially, I guess you could say, the law on this. And it brings up, of course, the way that the Trump administration had been using the federal courts as a bludgeon in order to invalidate sort of popular progressive laws that couldn't have been repealed through the normal legislative process. So maybe we could just get your views and for our listeners, some understanding about how separation of powers works in these instances. Well, you're talking about instances where the Supreme Court struck down laws adopted through the political process. I can give a couple of examples from just two weeks ago. There's a Supreme Court case called National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. It involved a California law, the Reproductive Fact Act, that says that facilities that provide reproductive health care to women have to post a notice that the state of California makes available free and low-cost contraception abortion for women who economically qualify. Unlicensed facilities have to post that they're not licensed to provide health care services. The Supreme Court, five to four, declares this unconstitutional. Justice Thomas writes, joined by Roberts and Kennedy and Alito and Gorsuch. And Thomas's opinion here says that this is impermissible, compelled speech. Well, the government was simply saying that the facilities had to post a notice on their wall giving true information to women patients. The Supreme Court previously said doctors can even be required to tell pregnant women descriptions of the fetus 
And so it's okay for the government to force doctors to do things to discourage abortion, but it's not okay for the government to provide accurate information to women. The other case from two weeks ago was Janus versus American Federation. Right. Since 1977, the law has been that public employees don't have to join a union, but they have to pay the share of the union dues that go to support collective bargaining. They benefit from collective bargaining in their wages, their hours, their working conditions. The Supreme Court said they shouldn't have to be free riders. But the same five conservative justices, with Justice Alito writing this time, overruled a 41-year-old precedent and said that the laws in California and 21 other states are unconstitutional. There's almost everything wrong with that decision, and you and I have talked about it, and especially about the Abood case that you just mentioned. And it really does seem alarming. I want to get your views on this. A lot of people worry now that Roe v. Wade will also be overturned. And the argument prior, I guess, to this is that even a conservative court respects stare decisis, I guess what they're calling settled law. Janice kind of shows that they don't. So could you talk a little bit about the precedent prior to Janice on settled law and whether or not you think that because of the ruling on Janice that Roe v. Wade is also on the chopping block? Sure. Let me take that in three steps. Okay. First, Janice overruled a 41-year-old decision Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. Thousands, tens of thousands of public employee contracts have been based on Abood. The Supreme Court, in one fell swoop, overruled all of that. Justice Kagan, in a very powerful dissent, said, there's no reason for overruling Abood. The Supreme Court majority just didn't like it and is doing it because it wants to. Second, in terms of precedent, stare decisis, I think for all justices, conservative and liberal, they follow precedent except when they want to overrule precedent. (laughs) Right. It's always a balance of power. And I think that when it comes to areas where justices strongly disagree, they have no hesitation about overruling precedent. If lightning struck and a miracle happened and I was on the Supreme Court, I'd overrule Citizens United in an instant. Right. Well... I think conservatives have the areas that they'll overrule in an instant. That brings me to Roe versus Wade. I think at the very least there are going to be five justices to uphold every imaginable restriction on access to abortion and in essence kill Roe by a thousand cuts. But unlike many, I actually think there'll be five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. This has been part of the conservative agenda for decades. They almost had five votes to overrule Roe in 1992, and Justice Kennedy changed his mind. Now they've got five votes, I think, at least assuming that Brett Kavanaugh gets confirmed. And I think that we're going to see Roe overruled, states having the power if they want to, to prohibit abortion, and many states will. It does seem crazy, I think, given that most women do not agree with this, but that's a different question. So yet another gigantic attack, you're saying, on the gains of the last, what, 40, 50 years. Most Americans believe that women should have the choice whether to terminate their pregnancy before viability. But, and this is an accurate statement, five Catholic white men on the Supreme Court are going to take that right away from women. 
And that's exactly right. And it just reminded me of the slogan that we used to chant way back in the 70s, neither the Pope nor the state has the right to determine my fate. And you're saying, of course, that's not the kind of reasoning that they'll be uh, taking into consideration, unless, of course, it's something very dear to them. All right. So that's on the chopping block. What about... The other issues, you mentioned that some would even overturn Brown versus Board of Education, but there's all these other race-conscious remedies to correct past discrimination, like in the Fair Housing Act, affirmative action. Do you consider all of these up for change now? Well, first, Brown versus Board of Education isn't going to be reconsidered. That's because Brown was about laws that mandated separation of the races in schooling, those laws aren't on the books anymore, so the court's not going to reconsider Brown. But in other areas of race, I think we're going to see dramatic changes. The area where I'm convinced that without doubt there's going to be a major change is affirmative action. Chief Justice Roberts is outspoken in believing that all affirmative action is unconstitutional. Just Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch join him in this. I think Justice Kavanaugh is going to be the fifth vote if he's confirmed to overturn the prior affirmative action rulings and say that the government, and say college admissions, has to be colorblind. It's more subtle and more technical, but I think there's a real chance that the Supreme Court is going to say that allowing liability based on discriminatory effects, so-called disparate impact, is unconstitutional. Under the federal employment discrimination law, under the federal voting law, under the federal housing law, don't need to prove a discriminatory intent a discriminatory effect is sufficient. But in a number of cases, including this term, conservatives express concern that allowing liability based on discriminatory effect causes decision makers to take race or sex into account, and that's unconstitutional. So does that mean that, for example, that employers could fire gay or trans employees or that uh, redlining can come back in uh, preventing families of color, say, access to mortgage financing? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, you've asked a couple of different things. In terms of the former, no federal law protects transgender individuals from employment discrimination. In fact, traditionally it was thought that no federal law protects gays and lesbians from employment discrimination. There are now a couple of federal circuits that have said that Title VII and the 1964 Civil Rights Act if it's employment discrimination based on sex, also includes sexual orientation. That issue is going to come to the Supreme Court, and I worry about what's going to happen without Justice Kennedy there. In terms of housing, the federal open fair housing law adopted in 1968 would clearly prohibit intentional redlining. There's no doubt that if it's done in that kind of a way where you can show discriminatory motive, that it would be impermissible. But the question is, what if it's more subtle? What if there's a discriminatory effect of what's happening, but not a discriminatory motive? That's where I think the law is likely to change. Well, we've run out of time, and I want to thank you, as always, Erwin Chemerinsky, for literally shedding light on all of these issues that, as we can see, are so pretentious. And can you uh, maybe leave us with a final thought of any silver lining or hope? The silver lining... <laughs> Is time. The late Martin Luther King Jr. said the arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice. Over American history, there's been tremendous advances of liberty and equality. 
We're at aggressive period. I think this regressive period is going to get worse, but I think there'll then be a progressive era where we will have a progressive Supreme Court. Unfortunately, it's not going to be for a while. I want to thank you so much for that final thought. Erwin Chemerinsky. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dean and Jesse Choper, Distinguished Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law and Leading Constitutional Expert. Go out and look for some of his books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court and Closing the Courthouse Doors, How Your Constitutional Rights Became Unenforceable. I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. And thanks so much to Erwin Chemerinsky. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And Dan Labatz is returning to give us his analysis of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's victory. And, of course, he is known popularly and everywhere as AMLO. It was a landslide victory in Mexico's recent presidential election. And arguably, AMLO had the election stolen from him in 2006, but his victory this time was too large to undermine or seal, or at least we think that's the reason. But what are his politics and what is his program? Dan Labatz has written extensively on workers' rights in the United States and Mexico, and he joins us with his take. And I should just say, Dan is a prominent American labor union activist. He's an academic, a journalist, and he's written a gazillion books, but he was co-founded of Teamsters for a Democratic Union. And just on Mexico, he's written Mask of Democracy, Labor Suppression in Mexico Today, and The Crisis of Mexican Labor. His latest book is about the Nicaraguan Revolution called What Went Wrong. And with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio, Dan Labatz. Nice to be with you. Thanks for asking me to be here. Well, thanks so much. And I think we should just begin with this election, which in some ways now, I guess, has to be seen as historic and the victory. Yes, it is historic, absolutely. I mean, this is a country that for 90 years was ruled by one party, except for a 12-year period from 2000 to 2012, and for 90 years by one party that for decades had held every office in the country. I mean, from president to dog catcher in every state, city, uh, village in Mexico. That's the Institutional Revolutionary Party. And if I could just interject uh, one quick second, because I always thought, Dan, that the PRI, PRI, or the Institutional Revolutionary Party, was a contradiction in terms. How can it be both revolutionary and institutional? But I guess that's just my thing. I think I've heard other people say that. I think I've said that myself. It obviously is a kind of an oxymoron. But it dominated the government so completely, and it was fused with the state for so long. I thought, and I predicted erroneously, in 2000, when Vicente Fox, the Coca-Cola executive, was elected president, I thought, well, this will break up the old relationships that make up the Mexican state party. But Vicente Fox just more or less left things in place in many areas of the government and just took over the pre's ruling bureaucracy and its relationship to the trade union and the control of many other institutions. It seemed for many decades that the rule was uh, only the pre could rule. Then after Fox, it seemed, well, only another conservative party can rule. The National Action Party of Vicente Fox is a a pro-business party. And it seemed like, well, the left will never be allowed to rule. So this is really extraordinary. He won with, you know, half of the votes. Uh, This is in a country where people usually win the presidency by getting 
37% of the voters or something like that. So there was a huge uh, level of participation, far above the usual levels of participation. And he not only won the presidency, but his party and the parties in his coalition come very close in both houses to having a constitutional majority. What that means is, is a majority that could change the Mexican Constitution. So it's an extraordinary victory, and it, it represents some sort of watershed for Mexico. But where the water flows hmm. uh, in this watershed from here is not clear. Well, before we go to that, Dan Labatz, let's just mention, because I said it in the introduction, and people probably know it, that this was AMLO's third attempt. The first one in 2006, of course, is one that almost everybody agrees was stolen from him. And as you mentioned in your recent article that people can find on newpolitics.org and also on the Solidarity USA website, that Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas also had the election arguably stolen from him. Why didn't they do it this time? Was it too large of a victory for fraud to take place? And when you answered, Dan, you also wrote a provocative article in Jacobin stating that you feared that should AMLO get close to victory, he would be assassinated. Yes, I did fear that. It seemed to me there was another presidential candidate who was a member of the PRI but began to criticize the PRI, made a speech. His name uh, was Colosio. Uh, Colosio. Mm-hmm. And then he was murdered in Tijuana and not far in the crowd from where he was, was a former CIA guy, and the murder was very mysterious. It never was solved or resolved. And it, it struck me that the business class in Mexico, at least until the day of the election, hated uh, Lopez Obrador. They feared that he would represent a radical change that would affect all of their business interests. And so it did seem to me, not beyond thought, that they might kill him. But I think what happened was that the polls were showing for weeks before he won the election, that he was winning the election by an enormous amount, that he was going to have 40 or 50 percent of the vote, and that he was uh, 20 or 30 percentage points ahead of his nearest competitor. In previous elections, if you're within 2 or 3 or 5 percent of the vote, perhaps you can carry out either ballot box vote counting fraud, or you can do uh, some sort of other fraud, you know, in the case of Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, He was winning, and then they said, oh, the computers have gone down. And when the computers came back up, Cardenas was losing, and Carlos Salinas was uh, making sure that the winner was going to be from his party. So it seems to me the reason that this didn't happen, the reason he wasn't killed, the reason they could not simply steal this election was the enormous popularity that was clear from the polls, and probably the fear. In other occasions, the last time they, when they stole the election from Lopez Obrador, in uh, 2006, he summoned up a million people who occupied the main streets of Mexico City for uh, days and days, I think for weeks. So they may have feared that, given this enormous uh, popularity, and, and clearly people voted against Enrique Peña Nieto and his pre-government and his candidate, Meade, and people really wanted to change. And I think they feared that if they tried to steal at this time, there might be a huge social explosion. And I think you're seeing that in any case. I remember that very well. And it almost seemed as if AMLO was going to start a government in exile, but not in exile. In other words, an alternative government back in 2006. But that popular... He sort of did. I mean, he sort of did. He he stood on a a platform and all by himself 
and took the oath of office as the real president of Mexico. He called himself the real president of Mexico, and he created a shadow cabinet and went around the country claiming the presidency, but but couldn't do so effectively. But I think that that really raises the question, and you just mentioned it, and that is, of course, that the country was polarized, but evenly so. And now it isn't. And you can see it in the streets of Mexico today that there's just an ongoing celebration that AMLO actually won. And now, of course, he started out, as you say in your article with the PRD, but no longer ran from that party. So can you say something about the Morena coalition that, in fact, is his new party and what its relationship was to the prior PRD? The the party of the Democratic Revolution, which came out of the Cuauhtémoc or Cardenas campaigns in the 1980s, that party brought together, the PRD brought together people who had left the PRI, who had a nationalist economic program and wanted to protect the Mexican economy. And it brought together also people from the Communist Party and other left parties in Mexico. But it brought in many kind of old-time politicians, and it was highly factional. And then in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, it was found to be involved in corruption, just like the PRI had been involved in. That is, political payoffs, a lot of money changing hands. And between the factionalism of the PRD, the several rival leaderships for the PRD, and its corruption, what Lopez Obrador did was he said, I'm quitting, and he started something that first he called the Movement for National Regeneration. And it's interesting that he chooses this word regeneration because it's a word that goes back to the early radicals just before the Mexican Revolution. It's a term that comes from kind of the anarcho-syndicalist tradition in Mexico. So that was interesting. And and he created this movement. You have to say, one thing you have to say about uh, Lopez Obrador is he's an indefatigable campaigner. He traveled the country year after year after year, going to every city, to every village, knocking, you know, at every village schoolhouse, really covered with dust as he went through all the dusty <laughs> villages of Mexico. And you had to admire that about him. And he took this morena, this movement of national regeneration, and a couple of years later, turned it into a political party. And it's a political party that he has dominated, that he is, without a doubt, he is the founder, he's the leader, he's the guy who, who really calls all the shots and chooses the people who are going to be holding other offices. It's not the kind of a movement where he's responsible to other people. It's really a movement he created and that he dominates. One might compare it to other kinds of figures, like maybe Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France, a similar kind of figure with a similar kind of uh, political organization. In any case, I I think that in this election, uh, López Obrador did a strange thing. He made an alliance with a conservative religious party, on the right. And it's a small party, but he did that early on in the campaign. And I think the reason he may have done that is to try to take the edge off the accusations that he was a far left extremist. Mm-hmm. And by making an alliance with this small religious party, he could make the claim that he was really held to uh, the deep Christian values, which many Mexicans uh, might see themselves as, as being part of that kind of a society. I just wanted to come in because I want you to move from there to the 
platform that he ran on, which was mostly anti-corruption, but also the program of, let's say, of Moreno, but also of AMLO himself. And I say that because he's actually made it to power now. And he's definitely considered as part of the left, but he's been criticized by the left for not being left enough and sort of saying, well, in this era of globalization and all of these free trade agreements like NACLA, he'll be like the rest of the pink tide that'll make their peace with these forces. And yet on the right, you get the criticism that he's an outdated nationalist and statist and uh, is going to try to, you know, take, do this archaic protectionism that belongs in a different era. So maybe before we talk about, let's say, the criticisms of him, what is his platform and what is the political program that he's proposing as now that he's in power? Well, when he first, when he first began running for office, he had a position back in the 1990s when he was a candidate of the PRD. His platform was in that nationalist economic vein of Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas, that is, that we are going to prevent uh, the privatization of the state oil company, that we are going to demand the iridium of the NAFTA treaty or replace it with some very radically different kind of treaty that would protect Mexican economic interests, that we are going to have a program that would redistribute wealth in the country. Uh, that was That was kind of the political platform that he put forward in the early years. I would say with almost every campaign that he ran, as the years passed, he moved uh, away further away from that uh, nationalist vision, and he became more... He tried throughout to win the support of the business class in Mexico. He was constantly attacked by the Mexican oligarchy, and which owns the Mexican media, Mm -hmm. uh, Televisa and uh, so on. The the Mexican press and the Mexican television would say they they would show pictures of violence in Venezuela, and they would say, "If you vote for Lopez Obrador, you're asking for a socialist uh, government that will bring chaos and violence. Look what's going on in Venezuela." And they would show violent uh, demonstrations or protests, gunfire, and uh, so on in in Venezuela. And this was the argument that was made against him. And I think that he kept trying to convince the business class, I can get along with you. I'm not going to threaten you. And in part, his political platform, that what the key to his, the, of his political platform is, we are going to remove the mafia that controls the government. He always uses this term, the mafia. Mm-hmm. And we're going to end the political corruption. And we're going to uh, actually run an honest government in Mexico. We're going to get rid of the pervasive corruption in government. And by saying that the problem, and he actually says this in a speech, it's quite interesting. He makes a speech where he says, oh, people like Karl Marx think that wealth is accumulated through exploitation. Well, that may be true elsewhere. But here in Mexico, wealth is accumulated not by exploitation of capitalists exploiting labor. It's accumulated by corruption. So having that kind of an uh, analysis and that's kind of a sophisticated statement that says, I don't see you capitalists as the enemy. The enemy is corruption. Uh, Capitalism is fine. But he couldn't win them over until this election. And in fact, even in this election, in the weeks before this election, businesses in Mexico were going to their workers or sending letters to their workers in the Mexican tradition telling them how to vote and telling them, you better not vote for Lopez Obrador because he'll destroy the economy and you'll lose your job. But it seems like once he's elected, Bloomberg had a headline that said, all is peace and love in Mexico now between AMLO and the business class. That is, the minute he was elected, the business, the bankers, 
and the corporation heads in Mexico and the leaders of this Mexican oligarchy came to him and said, you know, in big public meetings, they said, we want to get along with you. We want to see your presidency be a success. And he said, and I want to get along with you. Now, his program, if you looked at him as mayor of Mexico City, what did he do when he was mayor of Mexico City, which really made his reputation? As the mayor of Mexico City in the 1990s, he made a, a deal with the banks and the business interests to uh, build the, they call it the second level of the freeway in Mexico City. It was a huge floor. advance, too. He cleaned up a lot of the traffic jams by doing that. He did that. And they all, there was also, in that same period, they began uh, the light rail system. And in those same years, they began uh, with Carlos Slim, the richest man in Mexico, one of the richest men in the world. They began revamping the historic center of Mexico and, and improving that. So what we saw was that Lopez Obrador, his model was, you know, I grew up in Chicago as a kid, and I thought it was a very Mayor Daly kind of program. That is, Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to work with the banks and the construction companies. We're going to keep everybody employed. Everybody that we can will have a job. And then he came up with a social program that was very attractive and very positive. Mexico doesn't really have something like our retirement program, the Social Security program. And he gave everybody who was, they call it people of the third age, is what they say in Mexico and some other countries. People over 60 got a pension from the government, and this was wildly popular. So you had a person who was working with the business class, but also making some expansion of social programs to uh, the general population, and particularly to working people. Well, and the other thing is that in his campaign, as you mentioned, anti-corruption was the key, but the other thing was to say that he'll govern for the poor. You could criticize that perhaps for being vague, but on the other hand, you could also say that running against the corrupt forces, which could be mafia and could be drug cartels as well, seems to be almost as dangerous as running as an open Marxist. Yeah, I think certainly the situation in Mexico can be very dangerous because of the, the role of the drug cartels. The cartels are a big business, a multi-billion dollar business. The estimates of the drug cartels are about the same as the kind of income that Mexico gets from oil or manufacturing of automobiles or tourism or uh, remittances from foreign workers. That it's a multi-billion dollar business. The cartels are very powerful. They're very uh, involved at all levels in the Mexican government and business class. And uh, they're extremely well-armed, armed well enough to at least fend off. At first, certainly, sometimes they can defeat the ordinary police, who are themselves often other parts of other cartels, and they can uh, and they can even stand off the army sometimes. So it's very challenging and very dangerous to, to figure out how to deal with the cartel issue. Well, Dan, just let's take it to the unions. You've written a lot about the teachers' struggle, but also just about Mexican labor. And this is the one area that AMLO did not seem to specifically address, and yet in lifting the poor and in building a lot of infrastructure, one assumes that this is going to mean a lot of jobs. Is it going to mean much in terms of the problems of Mexican labor, including their own very corrupt unions? Well, I think that AMLO has a kind of ambivalent record on this. When he was the mayor of Mexico City, and I knew people who were in Mexico City and unions there and talked with uh, people who were union activists, and they would say, Lopez Obrador does nothing to help us. Whatever we're winning, we're winning on our own. And as you said, unions in Mexico have for decades, going back until the post-war period, been very gangsterized. And they're really they're run by gangsters. A typical union is a, really a, 
a guy who's a gangster and a lawyer. And the gangsters <laughs> and the lawyers sign up workers before the plant is open. They sign up with the boss to get the place unionized, and the workers join the union without even knowing it, and uh, money is taken out of their checks, and the union does nothing but make sure they don't make trouble, and if they do, they get fired. So that's the nature of Mexican unionism. Now, when he was the mayor of Mexico City and workers were fighting to democratize their unions or improve their conditions, he did not take a great interest in that. It was not a priority for him. He did not come down on the side of those uh, democratic movements in the unions. On the other hand, in the recent events, he has come out in support of the teachers in Mexico. And, of course, as uh, you and your listeners will remember, the teacher movement in Mexico came under this violent attack in which these uh, more than 40 young people were uh, kidnapped, disappeared, mm-hmm. and, you know, almost surely were murdered. He came out in support of the teachers, came out in support of the, the teachers' movement. And we have a very strange thing in Mexico that the leader of the miners' union, who one would not think of as being a progressive or something like that, he inherited the union from his father, but his name is Napoleon Gomez Urrutia. And when he inherited the union, for whatever reason, I think for his own personal interest in power, he started to fight. He made an alliance with unions in the United States, Canada, Peru, and started to fight fight the Mexican mining companies. And he had to go into exile in Vancouver, uh, Canada, <laughs> smuggled out of the country by the United Steel Workers of the United States and uh, and Canada. And he ended up, he's been running the union, reelected, but he's in Vancouver and been afraid to come back to Mexico. And Lopez Obrador supported him by putting him as a candidate on his slate. So I think Lopez Obrador's record is ambivalent. It seems to me, given the, the kind of leader that Lopez Obrador seems to me to be, his desire will be to figure out how can I harness the labor movement? Because I think he does want to carry out reforms, and he knows he'll need a social base to do that, and that social base is the working class. And so the question will be, how can I harness the working class to my vision of reform, which I think is a pretty moderate vision of reform. But given that, and I think we we don't have a lot of time uh, left, Dan Labatz, but there's one giant question looming to the north of Mexico, and of course that's the United States, and it's the United States under Trump. Trump, even though he has made a friendly phone call and they've talked to each other and said that they can work together, Trump, you know, is so far to the right at this point that AMLO might, I'm asking, could he represent some kind of threat? What do you think the relations are going to be like? And and it also begs the question of what a leftist of any kind can do when they win and can't really change the system and have to govern, you know, in a way that will disappoint certainly people further to the left and, of course, the right. Well, first, I think that Trump, is, as we know, Trump is all about Trump. and all about his program, what can advance that, and what can make him a a stronger figure, how can he keep his base. We can foresee that this will lead to enormous problems with Lopez Obrador in Mexico in the coming period. I mean, it's very odd to me that Trump just sent a very high-level delegation, including Mike Pompeo, to Mexico to meet with Enrique Peña Nieto, the president of Mexico, the PRI, and they had a long meeting and said they had good talks and they're going to try to reach agreements. Well, it seems to me they're doing that to reach agreements before Lopez Obrador takes office and to try to lock Lopez Obrador into things that he can't get out of. Lopez Obrador, I noticed, for example, canceled a deal to buy helicopters 
from the United States. These are Lockheed Martin helicopters, $1.2 billion deal. And Lopez Obrador said, we don't need these. We're not fighting a war with anybody. We don't need these uh, heavy armed helicopters in Mexico. And so I think that's quite interesting. And that's the kind of thing, obviously, he's canceling a business deal with an American corporation. He's rejecting the militarist um, notion, which is, a, you know, this relationship of the United States to other countries based on selling arms, militarism, getting contracts for American arms companies. I think that's indicative of the kind of problems that we were going to see. And regarding the other question you asked about, we see somebody like Lopez Obrador, who is elected, and he can almost not help but disappoint. Right. Um, I think that's true. I think he will be a disappointment. And to me, it's not so much that he's a disappointment to the left as that he'll be a disappointment to the Mexican people. People voted for him because they were, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of deaths in Mexico since 2006. We don't know, you know, between 250,000 and 300,000 people have been killed in the drug wars or disappeared in the drug wars. These are figures like we associated with countries in the Civil War, like Syria. So people voted against the old government. They voted against this kind of violence. They voted with hope in a man that pledges that he's going to get rid of the corruption and do something for the country, who immediately said, I'm creating a job program, sort of weird, a weird job program, because he's giving $5 billion to private companies to hire Mexican kids and supposedly to train them. These are these companies that hate labor unions and don't do much for workers. But it's going to be very contradictory to be in this position. That He has the great hopes. Well, this, you know, Obama's slogan, hope and change. Yeah. And, and this is Lopez Obrador. I am bringing hope. I'm going to bring change. People are going to be expecting a lot. And Obama's going to have to both deal with business and try to harness labor. From my point of view, we shouldn't be thinking about he's a leftist, and this is unfortunate. I think we should be thinking about the disappointment to the Mexican people and the fact that, though, that the Mexican people, inspired by this victory and having a sense that they helped to win it, may themselves now demand to be actors on the stage of Mexican history and not simply rely upon a hero leader. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but during the uh, the course of AMLO's time in office, we'll certainly return to this subject and see how he's going and see what's happening with the movement that actually is quite large in Mexico that brought him to power. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Dan Labatz. Look him up and you can find several of his books that are on Mexican labor, The Crisis of Mexican Labor, The Mask of Democracy, Labor Suppression in Mexico Today. He has a recent article uh, that you can see on the New Politics website, and that is newpol.org. Yes, newpaul.org, and Dan is uh, one of the editors of New Politics. He's also written for Jacobin and many other places. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. I look forward to talking about this as it develops. Thank you so much, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.